Hello, and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Kennedy. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement locally and internationally. This week, I spoke with clinical psychologist Dr. David Younger about his experience of living with fascia scapulohumeral muscular dystrophy and his over decade and a half experience of counseling people with physical and chronic illnesses. Dr. Younger provided some rich information on strengthening relationships, how to overcome shame, communication in the age of online dating, topics that are very relevant for people both with and without disabilities. And now let's listen in on that conversation with Dr. Younger. Younger, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast. Thank you. Hi, how are you, Ming? I'm doing well. We are so happy to have you today. So just to give our listeners a bit of a background, David Younger was diagnosed with fasciocapulohumeral muscular dystrophy when he was around four years old at the same time that his mother and grandmother were diagnosed. David is a licensed psychologist in Texas and in New York with a private practice that is web and phone-based with clients from all over the world. He has been married to his wife for 15 years, and they have a 13-year-old son and a 4-year-old daughter. David was educated at several prestigious universities. Uh, He received his bachelor's in literature and fine arts at Georgetown University, got his master's in psychology at New York University, received a master's in child psychology at Anna Freud Center and University College London. And finally, he received his doctorate in psychology at the University College London. Welcome, David. Thank you so much, Ming. It's great to be here. When I was first introduced to you, you were living in New York City. So how's uh, adjusting to life in Austin? It's a lot easier to get around in Austin. And actually, it was a big part of wanting to leave New York. It was just it was becoming increasingly difficult to navigate and almost getting hit by a car in the street because people don't pay attention. It's a lot more accessible here. So we've had guests with FSHD before come on our podcast, but can you give our listeners a refresher course on fasciocapulohumeral muscular dystrophy, especially in regards to how it relates to you? Because I know it's different for everyone. So for me, I'm about to turn 43, and this past decade, has been a hard decade for me physically. It's, it's progressive and degenerative. So 10 years ago, I was still walking around in New York City, taking the subway, and then I started tripping. And I started having to use ankle foot orthotics for, for foot drop. It's gotten worse from there. Stairs are really difficult for me, walking long distances, balance. I can still walk and I walk around my house and I walk if we go to a restaurant, but anything that requires 
anything longer distance or uneven terrain, I'll use my wheelchair. And it affects my arms, my, my shoulders, skeletal muscles in most of the body. And when did you start using a wheelchair? Three years ago. And was that a conscious decision or did it just progress to that point where you felt like you had to? It was a conscious decision. Actually, I was at a disabilities expo in New Jersey before we moved to Austin three years ago. And there was a company there called Will, W-H-I-L-L. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they do wheelchairs. And I'd never seen a wheelchair like this. And I tried it out. And it was realizing that I needed more support, especially outside of the house and when we travel. So it was a conscious decision. So I haven't heard of Will. Can you describe a little bit more about the chair, how it was different? Aesthetically, it looks like a beautiful machine. It doesn't look like a sort of a traditional wheelchair. It looks kind of like, um, you know, the X-Men movies, you know, the professor who's in the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. It looks a bit like Professor Xavier's wheelchair. It gets a lot of comments. It's actually really comfortable. The armrests keep my legs together because part of the difficulty for me is that if I don't have anything supporting my legs, they'll just splay out. So it's really comfortable to, to sit in and it goes off road. So I've taken it to Seattle on hikes and it's done incredibly well. So you're talking about the aesthetics of a wheelchair. What were your initial feelings and thoughts towards using a wheelchair? Were you mentally and physically prepared for that stage of your life? No, I don't think I was. And one thing that I've noticed is because I didn't use a wheelchair until three years ago, it's different from if I think if I had used it my whole life. How so? Uh, just issues of identity and shame. I think shame is, is a big one and feeling like all of a sudden people see me differently, treat me differently. Even though on, on the other hand, I don't have to worry about falling. It's easier to get around unless you're going in and out of a car. And can you elaborate on those differences? How did they treat you before and how do they treat you now? I think a lot of the looks I get are, wow, you're young and you're in a wheelchair. That's the projection. That's what I think that people are looking because you don't see that as often as an older person in a wheelchair. So it's more you get looks of curiosity and people are in general extremely helpful and friendly and accommodating. But, you know, 10 years ago when I used to walk down the street, I felt also like I could really own my sexuality, like walking down the street and seeing a woman and making eye contact and smiling. And now I feel like that doesn't happen when you're in a wheelchair. And what is obstructing it exactly? I don't feel like being in a wheelchair that the sexual attraction is what comes up for people. I think it's more like a curiosity you know, you're a younger man in a wheelchair. What's going on with him? 
And do you think that has anything to do with the current culture? It's a very sexualized culture at the moment, I feel like. You know, what do we prize in our culture? We prize thin, healthy, muscular people. So it's not something that feels like it. it's just a, a normal part of our culture. Yeah, I think a lot of us with disabilities, wheelchair users or whatnot, have these feelings and experiences, but we don't really talk about it. And hence the buildup of shame. Yes. It's not a singular experience. Exactly. Even like, and I'm sure you have experienced this many times too, but when you're in a wheelchair, if you go to a place that there's a big step or the bathroom is down the stairs, it kind of reinforces a message that, well, it's not that important for us that you can access our establishment. That's not a conscious decision that people are making, but, you know, unconsciously, at least, it happens. And there's always this feeling of, am I going to be able to access this place? Exactly. Even recently, as something uh, small as a garbage can, I notice more and more garbage cans, you have to step on them to open the lid. So yes, lots of negative messages being sent out, whether they're intentional or not. Right. So my next question, I think you can answer really well just from your personal experience. What are the challenges of being a father from a wheelchair? You know, how is it different from being a dad who can walk around with their daughter and son? That's a great question. I mean, on the one hand, it makes it a lot easier. So I'm from New York City, and we still go back there. And when I go, I use my wheelchair to get around, and it just makes it so much easier for me. It's a lot different because I have a son who's 13, and my daughter is four. So my son, I've really felt his shame and how difficult it is for him, especially if we're around people that he knows. So if we're in the city around a bunch of strangers, he's not feeling self-conscious. But if we were to go to an event here at his school, he is because he feels like people are going to meet him and see me and say, uh, okay, he's going to be known as the kid with the father with the disability. It's something that we talk about often. And it's also something we talk about in terms of how important it is for me to deal with my shame. Because if I don't deal with my shame, how can I possibly expect that my son is going to deal with his? And I think he's lucky in that he has a father who has so many professional experiences and um, training in this area. So you can really face it head on both with yourself and with your son and later perhaps with your daughter. Thank you. Yes. I mean, we definitely are a family that talk about everything that's going on and tend not to avoid the difficult conversations. And 13 is just at a hard age, whether you have a father with a disability or not. Right. Yeah, you think you're the center of the universe and everyone's looking at you and cares about all these things that you're doing when they don't. So Mm -hmm. that certainly exacerbates the challenge. So I know you didn't open up about your diagnosis until your senior year of college. So what made you finally open up and be willing to share both with your close friends, but then with the broader society as time went on? It felt like coming out of the closet. 
it just felt like this is so much a part of my identity and I'm keeping it a secret from the people who I'm closest to. And I don't want to do that anymore. So I decided to tell my four closest friends and it, it was so intense. and I felt so vulnerable. The fact that they knew this about me meant that they had an ability to hurt me in a way that they couldn't before. And then I started in therapy after college and started telling more and more people. Now it's at a point where I can't hide it. But that's a big downside of being able to hide it. A lot of my energy went into hiding it. I think in one of the articles you were talking about going to a classroom and strategically positioning yourself so that you weren't asked to lift a chair or something in that nature. Exactly. I was doing that all the time in high school and college, always being aware of, is this something that I can't do and how am I going to position myself so that I won't be exposed? It was all about avoiding being exposed. And Unfortunately, I didn't grow up talking about it. I didn't grow up going to therapy. So it was all just this raw, unprocessed fear, anxiety, and shame that I kept inside for years. Do you think it was the progression of FSHD that you opened up during that time? Or was it something else? I think it was something else because I was still able to hide it until I was in my early 30s. It was more the psychological burden, the emotional burden, and realizing that not telling people that I was close to was so isolating and alienating. I just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, it was definitely from one of the articles I was reading, I really felt the pressure of keeping it all in. So next, we're going to move on to relationships, one of the areas that you have a lot of experience in. So let's start off with a general question. What are the biggest issues people face in relationships? And what can we all do to enrich and have healthier relationships with one another? I work with a lot of people with disabilities in my private practice. It's one of my two main areas of focus. So I have that exposure and I have my own personal experience as well. Communication is one of the biggest factors, being able to just talk about what it is that you're feeling, especially with issues related to disabilities. There's a lot that feels like it would be easier to avoid by not talking about and how important it is to just be able to put words to a lot of the difficult feelings. So as children, it comes so naturally for us to say everything and, you know, express our thoughts. And as we grow older, we are able to filter and bottle certain things in. What do you think causes that enclosure? It starts from the very beginning, our relationship with our primary caregivers. So the way that we're related to informs how we feel about ourselves and what we feel is okay to express and not express. And that continues when we start going to school. So we're getting feedback from our peers, from our teachers, you know, our primary caregivers all the time that if you talk about this, you're going to be shamed, you're going to feel embarrassed, or you're going to be told to stop crying or not to feel this way, or you should just be happy. And all of this stuff 
conditions us to feel like, okay, well, these are things that I can't really talk about because I'm going to be shamed or I'm going to be told to stop feeling this way. And then we end up keeping it inside until we realize when we're older, wait a second, that's not good. This is really having an impact on me. And it's having an impact on me in ways that I never even could have imagined. What are some relationship challenges that individuals with chronic health conditions face that the broader able-bodied world does not have to worry about as much? One big thing is dating. I mean, probably the most common way that people meet people now is online. So when you have a disability, if you're using a mainstream app, you're dealing with, when do I tell people? Do I put it in my profile? Do I tell them once we have established contact and we're chatting and planning on you know meeting up, do I wait until we meet up? I mean, I know some people who have tried all of the above, and it creates a lot of anxiety about when do I tell, knowing that you're going to get rejected right away many times just because you have a disability without mm-hmm. people even knowing you. How could that not reinforce feelings of shame, feeling defective, and isolation. Being a person who's an expert in the relationship realm, what is your professional advice on that front? I encourage people to do whatever they can to talk about what they're experiencing, to seek out groups. I mean, I know there are apps, if you're interested, for dating for people with disabilities, but Ultimately, we have a choice. It's like, do you feed the shame and just withdraw and say, okay, I'm going to get rejected. So it's too painful to subject myself to that. So I'm just not going to try and meet people. Or do I realize that, okay, people are going to reject me, whether I have a disability or not. And I'm not going to take that on as my problem. I know that If I do it enough, I'm going to meet people that are open to really getting to know me and who I am. Easier said than done. I mean, I know how challenging and difficult it is, but the world needs us to be out there like you're doing, saying, I'm here, I matter, I'm important, look at me, get to know me. Then everything shifts when people get to know who you are versus just a picture of you as someone with a disability. In a couple of your articles or articles I read about you, you were talking about common patterns and programming that are keeping people stuck in these negative, vicious cycles. What are these common patterns and programming and how can we become unstuck? So going back to what I was talking about earlier about the ways that we're related to, the ways that we're related to from the time that we're born condition us to have feelings about thoughts and feelings and beliefs about who we are and our place in the world. And if they go unchallenged, those thoughts and feelings and beliefs persist. And we automatically look for things to confirm those habitual ways of thinking and feeling and believing. So the first step is really becoming aware and saying, this is not objective reality. This is not the truth. This is just the way I was conditioned by people to think and feel and believe. If this is not working for me, if I don't like this, I need to actually take a step back and do something about this and start challenging 
these thoughts and these feelings and these beliefs and the ways I'm doing things. And there's going to be resistance to that. If you're used to thinking and feeling and behaving a certain way for 20, 30, 40 years, there's going to be a huge resistance to doing something differently because we're creatures of habit. Even if the status quo is painful, it's what we know. Stepping into unknown territory can be really scary and feel very foreign, but it's that awareness that, oh, this is something that I'm doing without even thinking about it. Why am I doing this? Like, where did this come from? Why am I thinking and feeling this way? How is this serving me? How is this not serving me? And you start to pay attention to all these habitual things that you weren't paying attention to before. And what are the more uh, specific steps that people can take to do that? I'm a huge fan of mindfulness. Mindfulness is essentially the practice of presence, paying attention in the present moment to what you're experiencing. And you can do anything mindfully. You can eat mindfully. You can be in a conversation mindfully. The opposite of mindfulness is when your head is one place and your body is in another. And so if I were sitting here and thinking about what am I going to eat later for breakfast, that's not practicing mindfulness. Meditation is a way to practice mindfulness. You can use an app like Headspace and start with five minutes a day of a guided meditation where they take you through as a beginner and you just start paying attention to your breath. And every time your mind wanders, you bring it back and start focusing on your breath. And you realize how active our minds are. Our minds are like puppies, you know, that jump at every stimulus. It's our job as the owners of our minds to train our minds, just like people train our bodies. I see that you're starting this 30-day exercise routine, right? You say like, oh, I've got to train my body. Well, we've got to do the same thing with our minds. If you let your mind run free and be wild, it's going to jump at every single stimulus out there and you're going to feel like you're at the mercy of your mind. Mindfulness and meditation are the practice of training your mind. Yeah, I was I was actually doing that a while back, but it really takes focus and concentration. The point is not that you have a mind that's free of thoughts and that it's empty. And I hear people say often that I can't meditate because my mind is so active. But that's not true because it's just the practice of you get distracted, you bring it back. You get distracted, you bring it back over and over again. It's not that you need to have an empty mind in order to do it. For those of us who want to help our friends and families in times of acute crisis, frustration, hopelessness, but do not know how, what tips do you have for us? How can we be a better listener and advice giver? Especially in this day and age, I feel like people just feel that they always need to be talking and showing. Listening seems something more and more crucial. One of the big things is that people don't ask. If you have a disability, people don't ask. How are you doing? How are you feeling? What's going on for you? Because they assume that you don't want to talk about it or they feel awkward or they don't want to bring something up that's going to be too painful. So it ends up getting avoided. And then as someone with a disability, you end up feeling really alone with it. It's like, why are people avoiding talking about the elephant in the room? You feel like, well, if they're uncomfortable, I don't want to bring it up either. So 
part of it is just allowing yourself to be curious. I mean, curious from the standpoint of caring, taking the risk to say, hey, I've been thinking about you, what's going on for you? Or I imagine it, you know, it must be difficult now that winter's coming, for example, getting around. How is that for you? And just taking the risk to reach out and ask the questions and be willing to listen. I think that's so much more important than giving advice. And instead of giving advice, you can say, well, how can I best support you? What do you need from me? I care about you. So I think there are times where people do want advice. So how do you balance like when to listen and when to give advice? I ask because people will tell me, I say, what do you need right now? And I really mean it. I say it like, what do you need? Do you need me just to listen and to hear you and for you to share what you're going through? Or do you actually want some feedback and advice about whatever it is that you're struggling with? Something very obvious, but that a lot of us forget, especially yeah. as we become more and more hidden behind social media platforms. Just one quick thing to add to that is that I think the thing we need most, disability or no disability, but especially if you're living with a disability, is just to feel seen and heard and known. That is so powerful. So next, I want to ask you about Love After Kids. What inspired you to create Love After Kids, this program? And can you tell us a little bit more about it for viewers who are not as familiar with it? So my two areas of focus in my work are working with people with chronic health conditions and working with relationships and parenting. Those are the two biggest parts of my identity and things that I have lived with, I've got a 13-year-old and a four-year-old, and see the similarity between disabilities and love after kids is that they're huge things that people go through that don't get talked about enough. All of the challenges of if you're in a relationship and it's just two of you, and all of a sudden you have a kid and you're having to take care of a kid and you don't know what you're doing, and your relationship changes in so many ways. And everyone is putting pictures on social media of, oh, look at me, I'm so happy with my baby. But they're not talking about how they're not spending time with their partner, they're not having sex, they're not feeling prioritized anymore. And so it's about really wanting to create a space to talk about all those issues. So what are some unique challenges that individuals either in wheelchairs or other disabilities face that are different than the challenges of the everyday population when it comes to parenting and struggling with balancing relationships with the spouse? So one is self-care, because I feel like when you have a disability, it's not a luxury, it's a priority. When you have a kid, it's like, how do I balance taking care of myself and my health versus taking care of my partner, taking care of my child? Then you have feelings of, am I being selfish or feeling guilty for doing so? But you can't take care of others unless you're taking care of yourself, number one. Number two, there are all these physical limitations things that I can't do with my kid physically that people without disabilities can do, like lifting them up out of the crib and changing them and bathing them and doing school activities, all of these things that you have to find solutions with your partner. If you have a partner, you have to be constantly talking about. Otherwise, you're just going to feel really marginalized. 
and feel like, oh, there's just so many things I can't do that I'd like to be able to do. You have to be creative. Can you share a little bit more of how you've been creative in overcoming these challenges and balancing, you know, your wife might have more of a role in this area, but you have a bigger role in that area and how you've balanced it all? One very important thing for us that we weren't able to do with my son is that we were able to get help. So having help makes a big difference to take the burden off of my wife for things that I can't do. To keep an open line of communication about, you know, I'll do the things that I can do, but she knows things that are more difficult for me. We have to do a lot of planning that people don't even think about, like especially if there are events at my daughter's school about accessibility and will I be able to go to the event. So a lot of things that you just sort of take for granted if you don't have a disability you have to do a lot of behind-the-scenes planning for if you do have a disability. Mm -hmm. And I feel like getting help, I feel people with disabilities sometimes feel ashamed of that. But people who don't have disabilities get help. I just recently saw two able-bodied parents, you know, mom and a dad who has one son, and they have a nanny um, almost full-time. That's something that needs to be addressed as well in, in confronting shame in that area. Absolutely. It's liberating to learn to ask for help. That's definitely an evolution, a process for me that I've been able to embrace over time. Mm -hmm. As an expert in relationships, I can't help but ask you this question. In your personal opinion, how has technology such as cell phones, advancements in social media, and the increase in virtual connectedness affected relationships today? What are the pros and cons to this impact? The pros is that you have access. It's a lot easier to meet more people. And for someone who has physical limitations, it gives you access to meeting and connecting with a lot more people. And that's a huge pro. A huge con is that it feels so easy to swipe left or swipe right. Because you have access to so many people, it makes it so easy to just discard someone because I don't like their birthmark, I don't like the color of their hair, they're too short. All of these things that when you're meeting people naturally and you're getting to know them weren't as much of an issue. It's easier to focus on superficial things. And how do we overcome the negative aspects of it? Because there are so many avenues to connect and meet with people, you have to figure out what's right for you and trial and error, essentially. I mean, there are going to be certain venues and apps that are going to feel like, oh, this doesn't feel like a good fit for me. And maybe you want to do something like Meetup, where the initial contact is online, but then you have meetups in person. Part of it is just trial and error, I think. And just one thing I want to add is, I feel like these days we can connect with anybody at any time, and nobody's a stranger really anymore. We don't have to add everybody on Facebook or onto Instagram. Not every connection is going to be a healthy connection or needs to be a long-term connection. And what are your thoughts on that? Feel free to disagree with me. Oh, no, I, I agree. I limit my social media. I mean, I use social media mostly for my work-related stuff and getting the word out and making connections with people. But I'm very protective of my time and my space and 
my relationships and choosing who I want to share what with. It's not a game of numbers. It's not something like the more people that you can connect with, the better it will be. For me, it's all about quality over quantity. What are your thoughts on the progression of the Human Genome Project and bionics as it relates to individuals with disabilities? One area that's related to that is stem cell research, which is really exciting. And for FSHD, the type of muscular dystrophy that I have, they're making a lot of advances in having discovered the cause of the disease. And there are biotech companies working on gene therapy to turn off the gene that should be turned off. I feel like we're on the precipice of a lot of changes and discoveries. Unfortunately, so much of it is driven by profit. So many illnesses and diseases could be cured. We have the ability now to do so. But if there's not money in it, it's not going to happen. I don't know the most recent research on FSHD, but thinking about stem cell research in that realm, how does the research and the future progression of that phenomenon impact the existing population? The thing that I try that's changed for me, seeing all the advances that are being made. For example, I, I work in my practice with someone with spinal muscular atrophy And recently, there's been a, a drug that's gone on to market called Spinraza for people with spinal muscular atrophy. And there's hope. There are a lot of advances that are being made that could help us in different ways. And the best thing that we can do is take the best possible care of ourselves now, not to be living in, in the future and saying, well, I'll only be able to live and be happy if dot, dot, dot. It's a balance of really being present and living in the moment, but also being hopeful that there's a lot going on out there that can impact us with many different disabilities and chronic health conditions, including stem cell therapy. I see that you've started your own online counseling practice, web-based private practice. What are your advice for people who are trying to start their own practice or business outside of the counseling therapy realm? I love working from home. I love working for myself. Obviously, that means I don't have to commute. It's easier on me physically. I can create my own schedule, and it makes it easier for me to take care of myself. Those are all positives. Obviously, it puts more pressure on you. You can't depend on a company or someone else for your health care, for a regular salary, So there are risks involved in my private practice. I had an office when I was in New York City. And then when we moved, it was natural for me to continue working with most of the people that I was working with in person. So it happened kind of organically. But more and more people are working for themselves. If you feel isolated, there are a lot of shared workspaces that you can join so that you can be around other people who are working for themselves. What are some challenges you faced along the way with starting your own practice and how have you found solutions to them? So I didn't start off on my own. I started off working in a couple of different group practices in New York. It's really hard to go from nothing to having a practice. So I did that for a few years and then gradually I started my own practice 
and took people into my own practice from the groups that I was working at. Networking is, is really important. Meeting other people, talking to other people, letting people know what it is that you're doing and focusing on what you care most about, what you're most passionate about. If your heart is in it, it makes it so much easier. I'm doing this because I love doing it. Monday rolls around, I don't feel like, oh, I've got to go to work. I feel like I'm doing work that really makes a difference, that means a lot to me. I love the people that I work with and care about them. And it also is a way of making a living and supporting my family. I know you and your wife, Debbie, created a group therapy service specializing in working with people with physical illnesses. What are the unique obstacle courses that this group of people go through and what are some coping mechanisms? Right now, I run one group online. Debbie and I ran a group for a number of years in New York City, and we also worked with specific population of people with HIV. I'd say the biggest challenge in terms of running a group for people with disabilities is getting people to a location on a regular basis because it's so hard for people with disabilities to commit to something weekly to get to a specific location. It certainly makes it easier having it online. I feel like logistical issues are a huge challenge. Another is that Unfortunately, it's so hard for people to feel like they want to open up and talk about all of the challenges that they're experiencing. Why is that? Is that shame again? or I think it's a combination of shame and lack of practice. I think a lot of people deal with difficult things by compartmentalizing and kind of not dealing with it. People deal by not dealing and feel like if they do, the floodgates will open and they're going to be overwhelmed. So we're coming to an end here. And I wanted to ask one question that I read from your article that surprised me. So in one of your articles, you wrote, even though I have many more physical challenges today than I did 10 years ago, I am much more at peace today. Why are you more at peace today? What tools have helped you to come to this peaceful state despite the challenges that have come with the progression of FSHD? It's really about acceptance and integrating my challenges into my life, knowing that I struggle with shame and that's okay. Like I'm going to struggle with it and I'm willing to struggle with it and to deal with it and talk about it. I'm not alone with it. I am in my own therapy. I talk with my wife and my friends. I know that I have more challenges, but that I can find creative ways to deal with those challenges. And it doesn't mean that I don't have days and moments and times when I feel down and I struggle more, but that's part of life mm -hmm. and I'm willing to em embrace it. That to me is so important and what gives me so much hope and what I hope can give hope to other people. Beautifully said. Any last words of wisdom you, you would like to share with our listeners before we end our podcast here? I think the most important thing is to reach out in whatever way you can, whether it's in therapy or with loved ones or online not to stay alone in silence. Try and put yourself out there because there are other people who are experiencing similar struggles. 
number one. And number two, I just love your questions. I feel like they were so thoughtful and thought-provoking and really got to the heart of the matter. So thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. I want it all Popular and tall With looks and never quit And possibly a hit I want the universe To take away the curse To feed me one more lie That I will never die Cause if I had it all Then I would never fall As long as I'm alive Shame on me Shame on me Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. David Younger, for being extremely generous with his time today and for providing such thoughtful and insightful responses to our questions. Special thank you also to my cousin, Rachel Kennedy, for editing this episode of our podcast. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com. We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. I can do it on my own with a heart of silicone Cause if I had it all, then I would never fall as long as I'm alive